Revelation 21, we're looking at the uh, examining its full preterism, a damnable heresy, part 8. And uh, we're in the midst of looking at Revelation 21 and um, showing that it's completely incompatible with the idea that all this took place in A.D. 70. And I'll just read the first eight verses. Now, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was also no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud, loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. <clears throat> then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these, are the words, for these words are true and faithful. And we've come to verse 6. This is where we're, we're, we'll begin today. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly and unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Thus endeth the reading of God's holy word. In verse 6, Christ announces the completion of the salvation process and tells us who he is. And he said to me, it is done. <clears throat> I am the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end, I will give the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. So the glorified Redeemer proclaims that salvation has reached its consummation. The Greek word gigonon, translated it is done, does not derive from the verb to do, but rather from the verb to become. So Jesus is saying that his salvation has become a reality. It is now realized. Remember, salvation is definitive. Jesus died and rose from the dead. When he said it is done on the cross, the price had been paid. He rose from the dead. He conquered death, Satan, and hell. Then it's progressively applied in history. Individual and corporate sanctification, societal sanctification in history. The new heavens and the new earth are being built as, as we speak. And then it is becomes a reality at the consummation, a full reality. The it is finished... John 19.30, spoken after our Lord's atonement or vicarious suffering was completed. It was a statement referring to the foundation of salvation or a definitive redemption. In verse 6, we have salvation completed. All the elect have been gathered. They have been resurrected or raptured and glorified. The heavens and the earth have been renewed and perfected. The bride, the whole corporate church, in her glorified perfection, has been presented to the bridegroom at the wedding feast. Salvation has been fully realized. The perfect tense is used indicating that the perfection or consummation just achieved at the second bodily coming is a continuing reality. 
It continues on forever. The statement it has done is also found in Revelation 16, 17. In this verse, Jesus announces the completion or climax of the judgment on the wicked, interpreted by various commentators either as Israel or Rome, or Israel and Rome, that's Bonson's view, Israel and Rome, or the Papal Church, that's the old historical post-mill view. Those who do not bow the knee to Christ, the Lord over lords, the king over kings, will receive the rod of judgment, the wrath of the Lamb. But the fact that the same language is used does not mean that 16.17 is coterminous with 21.6. Context indicates application. One is wholly negative and describes a coming in judgment in history. Near the beginning of the millennium, A.D. 70, if you apply it to Israel, if you apply it to Israel and Rome, you've got A.D. 70 and then you've got, you know, the 5th century or so. The other occurs after the final judgment of all men and the renewal of all things. <coughs> the time indicators throughout the book Noting that a judgment that is near or soon, Revelation 1, 1 and 3, 3, 10, 3, 11, 11, 4, 17, 8, 22, 6, 7, 10, 12, and 20, do not apply to events described as occurring at the end of the millennium. You know, they make so much of, of time indicators. You know, the church is avo avoided in completely ignored time indicators. And to a large extent, that's been true. That they have, The time indicators have not been taken seriously as they ought. But then they turn around and they ignore the time indicators of Revelation chapter 20. Let's pay attention to all the time indicators. If the millennium is going to last at least a thousand years, you can't say that this all took place in AD 70, unless you ignore Revelation chapter 20, which is what they do. They They point to some time indicators, and they ignore other time indicators, which is a terrible way to interpret Scripture. The it is done of Revelation 21 follows the general resurrection, the white throne judgment, the renewal of all things, and the marriage of the whole corporate church to Christ. It's the whole corporate church. It's not speaking of individual Christians going to heaven. It's the whole corporate church. Time indicators are crucial and must not be ignored. Consequently, we must not limit the 1,000-year millennium to 40 years, which makes absolutely no sense at all. And even the best scholar among the full preterists, Russell, says it's a serious problem, but then ignores the problem. <clears throat> Consequently, oh, by taking the time indicators in the near and the immediate context of Revelation 21.6 seriously, we do not need to redefine the resurrection of the body the second bodily coming of Christ, the final universic public judgment, and the restoration of the cosmic order out of existence, which is what the full preterist does. They take several well-established Christian doctrines that go back to the post-apostolic church, all the way to the, the first creeds and confessions, all the way through the Middle Ages, all the way through the Reformation, all the way through to the modern Bible-believing churches. They take all of that and throw it away, redefine all of it out of existence which is, by the way, the same thing liberals do. John has shown the consummation of all of God's salvific work through Jesus Christ so the persecuted saints can take comfort and have hope that a time of perfect justice and total, complete, victorious salvation is coming.
all persecutors, not just the Jews, not just the Romans, will receive their just recompense of reward. Muslims have probably killed more Christians than the Romans did. The communists have killed more Christians than all of them combined. The statement, it is done, may be an allusion to Psalm 33.9. For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And that's, of course, referring to the work of the Son in the first creation. As the Divine Son was the mediator of the first creation, the Incarnate Son was the author of the new creation. The whole election of grace is completed. Every individual vessel of mercy is called by grace. All the saints are brought with Christ, and their bodies raised, the living saints changed, and all together are as a bride prepared for her husband. And the nuptials are now solemnized. All the promises and prophecies related to the glorious state of the church are now fulfilled. The kingdom of Christ is complete. All other kingdoms are destroyed. There is a public vindication of the saints. And then we come to the Alpha and the Omega. To strengthen faith in his words, Jesus gives us his self-designation or title as a pledge of his power to carry out his prophecies. This is 21.6b. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. In the Greek, by the way, I am, ego emi is emphatic. In the Greek, you don't need to say the word I. Just have the verb, and the verb includes whether it's I or you or they. But when you want to be emphatic, you include ego, which is I. I, the Son of the living God, the resurrected Christ, and the Alpha and the Omega. The I am alludes, of course, also to the fact that Jesus is Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. See Exodus 3.14, John 8.58. He has infinite power and authority, and therefore is in absolute control of everything. He controls the atoms. He upholds the, the galaxies. Consequently, everything he promises will surely come to pass. And this statement, by the way, is found in Revelation 1.8, which adds <clears throat> this. Who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So Jesus is the omnipotent Lord who wields all power and controls everything in creation and history. His purposes cannot be thwarted. His perfect salvation will be completed and come to a consummation. Now Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount not to worry. And we have other passages. There's a great passage in Philippians. Don't be anxious. Be anxious for nothing. Why can Jesus and Paul teach this? Because Christ is in absolute control. Things around us are in ethical chaos. The Democrats hold power. And they're satanic to the very core. The sodomites are determining laws in our land. And feminists and abortionists, murderers, are determining laws in our land. Take comfort, Saint. Christ is in control. Don't worry. Be biblical. Continue with what you're supposed to do. Christ will take care of everything for us. <clears throat> 
The Alpha and the Omega, of course, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Christ is the revelation of God and the controller of all history from the first to the last. As his power was the cause of the whole creation, his perfect redemption gives him the power or salvific efficacy, making him the source of the recreation. And that's taught very clearly in the early chapters of Colossians. When he created the world and everything in it, he declared it to be very good. Genesis 1.31 His salvation and the renewal of all things, the bringing of everything to perfect, uh, to glorified perfection, is the culmination of his eternal plan. Remember, the full preterist, the, the dominion mandate, or you can call it, the Dutch like to call it the cultural mandate, in the early chapters of Genesis, to them that's never fulfilled. The earth always remains full of death and destruction and heartache and sorrow. But Christ will bring that to perfection. He is the foundation and spring of God's saving work from inception to consummation. Since Christ controls the future, the persecuted and afflicted saints can have a strong faith even in the midst of trials and tribulations. Okay, today if you're, an Amer if you're a strict Christian, people are going to think you're uncool and they're going to gossip about you and people at work may hate you and so forth. But these people in the Roman Empire, they're getting killed. They're losing their property. They're being thrown to the lions. Now, if you take the early date of Revelation, which would be around 67, uh, the persecution wasn't real severe yet. Well, it was, it was pretty bad. I mean, uh, Nero was killing a lot of Christians. But it becomes even worse as time goes on. The Bible does not advocate a pre-tribulation rapture or a physical escape from life's afflictions. And I have a book against the pre-tribulation rapture on reformedonline.com. But rather a solid faith that endures through them. Man looks to human autonomy for salvation, ethics, and meaning. He believes, that, he believes that through his own mind, apart from Christ and God, he can create a utopia on earth. The Democrats, they believe, just throw money at everything, bribe everybody to vote for you, and just pay for you know new programs, left and right. Eight trillion dollars of new debt in two years. Eight trillion dollars. That's insanity. But his designs have always failed in history and brought tyranny, misery, and chaos to society. He miserably fails for two reasons. First, the Bible tells us very clearly that the fear of Yahweh, the fear of Jehovah, the fear of God, is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. It's the source of true knowledge, meaning, and ethics. If we are to be wise and have success, we must bow the knee to Christ and think God's thoughts after him. Everything must be submitted to the infallible word of God. We are, to lean on our, we are not to lean on our own autonomous understanding and philosophy, but are look to the Bible and thus develop an explicitly Christian law, order, and culture. Our philosophy of life and happiness must be negative, must be receptively reconstructive, not autonomous. Secular humanism is always and will always lead to a kind of hell on earth. You know, there's 150,000 homeless people living in L.A., pooping on the street, injecting drugs, 
They find dead bodies. People overdose. People murder each other. It's filthy. It's disgusting. The Bible has solutions to all that. People who refuse to work or are irresponsible, they want to just take drugs all the time. The way to solve that is a biblical slavery. Put them in a, a seven-year plan of servitude where they're not allowed to take drugs and they have to work hard. Teach them responsibility. <clears throat> Freedom and responsibility and prosperity are destroyed as men worship man. Second, if our ethical standard and civil laws are not, do not derive from God, then all ethical values are arbitrary, positivistic, relativistic, and constantly changing. This means that there is no standard above man, and consequently the state takes the position of God. European Union, Canada, Australia, Britain, America... They all have adopted secular humanism. They're all anti-Christian. They all have pro-abortion, pro-sodomite, pro-transgendered laws, which are an abomination in God's sight. Because man is a source of law. Such thinking has always led to totalitarianism and the persecution of Christians. Because true Christians refused to bow to the state's ethical corruption and implicit Satanism. Now we just had Apparently it was a PCA church, what was it, Tennessee, and a transgender goes in and murders six people because he hates Christians. How does the press and the Democrats discuss that? Well, it's the Christians' fault. It's the Christians' fault because they're against that behavior. And then, of course, it's the guns' fault. <laughs> But Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, created the world, and through his perfect redemption, he created the church and caused a cosmic recreation. He who began the work in the Incarnation and definitively achieved it at the cross and empty tomb has the power and authority to bring that work to completion, perfection, and consummation. Remember, it is a crucial aspect of our Lord's glorification to finish his work. If you, any Reformed theology book, systematic theology, whether it's Hodge or Bodvink or whoever, Warfield, whoever, when they talk about the glorification of Christ, part of his glorification is he's in charge of the final judgment. He's the one who declares the sentence and casts into the hell, lake of fire or says, enter into the joy of your Lord. He has that public authority. But the full preterist believes that he leaves it imperfect uncomplete, or not realized. For these heretics, Jesus is not really the Alpha and the Omega. They teach that the counsel of God leaves the earth in sin, death, and chaos. They teach that the creation will never experience a sinless perfection and complete reversal of the fall. Their teaching maligns the righteousness and holiness of Yahweh and that the triune God's plan of redemption and its implementation in history leaves a world where evil, sin, Satanism, witchcraft, suffering, disease, pain, crying, and death continue on forever. Now they might say, well, we don't really believe that, but based th their position is that Scripture doesn't teach anything else. Scripture leaves things the way they are now. There is no culmination. Christ has already returned. We're in the final state right now. 
So if they say, well, no, this will end sometime, they have no, according to their own presuppositions, according to their own interpretation of Scripture, they have no basis for that assertion. And therefore, they're denying a critical aspect both of Christ's glorification, they're denying a critical aspect of God's nature and character, and they're denying a critical aspect of redemption itself. They believe in no ultimate, perfect, final victory. Salvation is partial, not cosmic and complete as defined by Scripture. Full preterism is inconsistent with the goodness of God and his regard for his own creation. They leave creation fallen. They leave it fallen, full of death and suffering. In Revelation 21, 6c, Christ focuses our attention on the connection between personal redemption and our participation in the final, complete, perfect state of salvation. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. And this passage is connected to the need to persevere or overcome in verse 7. It alludes to passages such as Isaiah 51.5, excuse me, 55.1. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, come, buy, without money and without price. And especially John 7.37-38, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart flows rivers of living water. And also John 4.14. Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I will give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Now the word I in our passage is also emphatic. Ego. I. I, meaning I alone. We look solely to Christ for our salvation and continue thirsting for him as our only source for the Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and gives us courage, endurance, and perseverance in trials. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us a love of Christ and spiritual things and causes us to live in a manner that progressively recreates planet Earth. If we continue to focus our faith on the Lamb and His precious sacrificial blood, we will live in the new heavens and the new earth, where the river of the water of life proceeds from the throne and from the Lamb. Revelation 22, verse 1. We are to strongly desire Christ, look to Him for salvation and progressive sanctification, and live for Him, so that we can be a blessing to those around us. Now, I'll deal with how the full preterist deals with this. They look at this as proof that this cannot refer to events in the second coming. Well, we're dealing with application to the people that the book was written to. Obviously, people still need to look to Christ by faith. We'll do with that in a minute. We must remember that Revelation is not just a book about judgment, but also repeatedly teaches us the need to overcome during trials. Revelation 2.3 and 7, and 10, and 11, 17, and 26, 3, 3, and 3, 3, and 5, and 10, and 12, and 21. Those are during the letters to the churches, the seven churches. Overcome, overcome. It's repeated over and over again. Overcome. We must therefore walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5, 16. Hunger and thirst after righteousness, Matthew 5, 6. Feed by faith on Jesus' flesh and blood. John 6, 53-54, we must think and pray like the psalmist. This is 42, 1 and 2a. As the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. The deer in the heat of the Negev, 
the deer out in the wilderness in the heat of the summer, thirsty, panting, and finds a brook of pure, clean water. Only those who continually thirst for Christ and his precious blood will be conquerors over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Remember, one of the purposes of prophecy is to spur us on to godliness, faithfulness, and loyalty. It takes faith in the promises of God to overcome persecutions and afflictions in the present. So we're entering into application. And here I've labeled this the application of the vision, even though we've begun it already. In verses 7 and 8, the application continues by following a strong warning. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Brimstone is sulfur. I was actually, I watched an archaeologist. He was in the area where they thought that Sodom and Gomorrah was. And there's all these rocks. These these rocks. And you can light them with a lighter and they, they, they burn. They burn. So there's even evidence that Sodom, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah took place exactly as the Bible says. <clears throat> Believers who still live in a fallen, corrupt world of sin, violence, oppression, and persecution are to look at these visions with faith so they can persevere and overcome Satan's attacks against them. The prophecy reveals to us that Jesus has already won the war against Satan, sin, and death and all his followers. He's won it definitively. All persecutors have already been defeated definitively in Christ because of Christ, as well as sin and all its consequences, the curse, the second death, spiritual death, the fallen cosmic order, etc. He's already won. But for us living in the millennium or the new covenant era, the war is still in process. We're in the war. And that's very obvious, especially in our generation. Who would have ever thought, if you go back to the 1940 or 1930 or 1920, that uh, we'd be murdering over a million babies a year in our country, murdering them, scrambling their brains, cutting them in pieces and sucking them out of the womb. And, and women would call that virtuous and wonderful. I have it right over my body so I can murder what's in my body. Who would ever think just a generation ago that we'd have sodomite marriage and the legalization of homosexuality? It's totally, thoroughly disgusting what's going on. The room is focus our faith <clears throat> on Christ. We are living in the midst of the process. It does not come to an end until the second bodily, literal coming of Christ. Therefore, we must focus our faith on Christ and look to the promises of perfect justice, a full victory in the rewards of grace that are coming. We must deny ourselves and be living sacrifices for our heavenly king, knowing that the overcomer will inherit all things, but the coward who returns to the world and apostatizes will inherit the second death in the lake of fire. Remember, once again, prophecy is a, not a bare, prediction, a bare prediction of things to come. 
that serves as an anchor of faith so that God's people will be covenantally faithful. It's supposed to spur us to greater obedience, covenant faithfulness, sanctification, godliness. Christians are never to have a defeatist spirit, for Jesus has conquered, and we are conquerors in him, more than conquerors. For the real serious Christian life in this world is warfare, for we reject all the idols of heathenism and statism, the religion of secular humanism. Note Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3.10-12. But you carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions. What persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Why? Because you're not going to compromise with a wicked state. You're not going to compromise with a seminary, uh, the college professor, these, these Satanists at the, our colleges who are in favor of ethical anarchy and Satanism. Jesus repeatedly warned his disciples of the coming persecutions. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 10.22 For our Lord remaining silent and acting the coward while society follows Satan and rots ethically, socially, and culturally is not an option. Compromise and lukewarmness needs to syncretism and apostasy. John 15, 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Matthew 10, 34, 38 to 39. You could read that whole chapter. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. In that chapter, he goes on to talk about Christians being hated by their parents, who are not Christians, being hated by relatives. You'll be hated by people at work. They'll think you're crazy. Now, the word overcome, Greek, nikao, comes from the word for conquest, nike, or victory. It refers to achieving victory, conquering, prevailing, subduing, and thus overcoming. To overcome for the Christian is to be victorious over Satan, temptations, sin, and trials. And the word is found in the book of Revelation 13 times. Uh, 2, 7, 11, 17, 26, 3, 5, 12, 21 twice, 11, 7. Of course, that's the beast killing the two witnesses. He overcomes the two witnesses. 12, 11, 13, 7. That's the beast making war against the saints. 17, 14. And that's the lamb overcomes the beast with the ten horns. And then 21, 7. The Christian must overcome in general. This includes sin, lukewarmness, heresy, and persecution. In the letters to the seven churches, we see a distinct pattern. What needs to be overcome? 2-7, this is very interesting. Sin and heresy. 2-11, persecution. 2-17, sin and heresy. 3-5, sin. 3-10, 12, persecution.
persecution. 321, lukewarmness or spiritual complacency. And each one of these is, has a promise of reward. Eat from the tree of life. Not hurt by the second death. Given the hidden manna to eat. Clothed in white garments. Become a pillar in the temple of God. Sit with Christ on his throne. We see that overcoming sin, heresy, and spiritual indifference is just as important as overcoming persecution. And that's taught in the book of Revelation itself. Note, each has a particular future reward. The goal is corporate covenant faithfulness. Remember, these are written to particular churches. And what's amazing is if you look at a map of Asia Minor and you actually look where each of these towns is, it's a circle. Well, it's like a long oval. There's a road that goes from each city to city, and they're listed in the order of the cities. We refuse to accept or cater to the ethical relativism that dominates the people and institutions in our apostate society. We emphatically reject the satanic culture around us and stand firm on the perfect, absolute, unchanging moral law of God. I mean, let me tell you, uh, the so-called right, the conservatives, they've made peace with homosexuality. They don't sit there and say homosexuality is disgusting and immoral and it should be illegal. None of them say that. They've all accepted it. Jordan Peterson and uh, Ben Shapiro and all these people, they all accept it. It's just, oh, yeah, it should be legal. It should be, it, we should consider it a normal behavior. Uh, that's not a biblical view. That's not the path to victory. Once you accept something that gross and perverted as moral and acceptable, why should you stop at the transgendered hair abomination? Why stop there? Why not have polygamy? Why not have three wives married to three husbands all at the same time in the same house? Once you accept one perversion, where do you draw the line? It's just a conservative, a more conservative form of secular humanism battling against a left-wing form of secular humanism. You've got to draw the line where God draws the line. We do not compromise but confess Christ even in the midst of persecution because even though the Satan's followers may imprison, torture, and murder us, we have seen the victory ahead. Salvation fully realized and consummated. We must imitate Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. We're not here to live for self and pleasure. He who loses his life will gain it, Jesus said. Pick up your cross, follow me. If you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of me. That takes faith. You have to live not for present pleasure, but you have to look to the future reward. We are reminded of our Savior's words, Matthew 10, 38 to 39. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. For he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Now John uses the word inheritance for we all receive these great salvific blessings through Christ. It is by the blood and righteousness of Christ that we are justified and adopted into God's own family. Romans 8, 15 and 24, see Galatians 4, 5 and Ephesians 1, 5. Paul writes, this is Romans 8, 16 to 17, <clears throat> The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. 
And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. The new heavens and the new earth and our resurrected glorified state are our inheritance solely due to what Jesus has accomplished. Jesus earned eternal life as the second Adam and we receive it by faith. Matthew 16, 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 12. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Now these passages which talk about perseverance, endurance, overcoming, and that if you don't overcome, you don't go to heaven. They do not teach salvation by works. Let's make that clear. It's a fruit of faith. It's a fruit of saving faith to do these things. Here's what John Murray says. <clears throat> Quote, Join heirs of Christ means that the children of God enter in jointly with Christ into the possession of the inheritance which was bestowed upon him. <clears throat> this is the aspect from which union and communion with Christ, which the apostle had emphasized in other connections in earlier portions of this epistle, are to be viewed in the state of glory. Just as Christ in his sufferings, death, and resurrection cannot be contemplated apart from those on whom behalf he suffered, died, and rose again, so in the glory bestowed upon him as the reward of his finished work, he cannot be contemplated apart from them. It makes perfect sense, for he did it all for them. He didn't need to do any of it. And they in the state of glory cannot be contemplated apart from him. Therefore, the glory of their inheritance can be none other than the glory which is Christ in the reward of his exaltation. If so, be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him, is the condition upon which the attainment of the inheritance is contingent. See verse 9. There is no sharing in Christ's glory unless there is a sharing in his sufferings. Sufferings and then glory was the order appointed for Christ himself. And then pause for a second. The life of sanctification, of struggling against sin, battling the flesh, fighting against perseverance, overcoming the world, overcoming temptation, overcoming those who hate our guts. God ordained that as part of being a Christian. And it's emphasized throughout the four Gospels by Christ himself. Continuing. And this is critical. Believers do not contribute to the accomplishment of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, and redemption. Nowhere are their sufferings represented as having such virtue or efficacy. The Lord laid his people's iniquities upon Christ alone, and in him alone did God reconcile the world to himself. Christ alone redeemed us by his blood. Nevertheless, there are other aspects from which the sufferings of the children of God are to be classified with the sufferings of Christ himself. They partake of the sufferings which Christ endured, and they are regarded as filling up the total quota of sufferings requisite to the consummation of redemption and the glorification of the whole body of Christ. See Philippians 1.24. Excellent. It's part of God's plan. And it leads, well, the bliss of heaven, the consummation, be that much greater because of the sufferings we had to endure. Now, the full preterist looks at passages where the prophetic message is used to spur on greater faithfulness and obedience. What do they do with it? 
or to passages that prove all the events of... Uh, <clears throat> they look at that as proof that all the events of chapter 20, 21, and 22 must have taken place in, the, in that generation, A.D. 70. And you read their books and they go, Oh, see? Here's an appeal to believe in Christ as a fountain of life, a fountain of waters. See? It's not the final state. People are still getting saved. That's how they apply it, which is nonsense. Revelation 21.6c, where Jesus promises to give the water of life freely, is said to be proof that the gospel is still being preached after the second coming of Christ in AD 70. That's what they say. Well, such arguments do not consider the obvious fact that prophecy, when discussing events near, near at hand or far off into the future, regard to time, are always applied to the original audience for the purpose of teaching doctrine and the need for covenant faithfulness. Prophecy always has personal application. I mean, to overlook that fact is just, to me, completely absurd, ridiculous. This observation was true of Abraham. They didn't possess the land of Israel until 400 year, over four, about 400 years later. He never saw it. But he was obedient to the promise. The patriarchs, Israel, and the New Covenant Church. It is perfectly logical and fully accords with the analogy of Scripture for God to show persecuted saints that, that, that not only does our resurrected King give victory in history as the gospel leavens planet Earth, and Jesus uses the iron rod of judgment on his enemies, because that's a big part of Revelation, but he also gives us perfect justice and a total consummate victory at the end of history. Now, if you ever watch these crime shows, some young girl, 20 years old, she's raped and murdered, beat to death, viciously attacked and murdered. And you see that the parents, whether they're Christians or not, they want justice. They demand justice. They call the women, especially the mothers, they call the cops year after year. Solve this, please. We want, there's this craving for justice. Well, a lot of times justice doesn't happen in history, but it, will happen perfectly at the end of history. There will be perfect justice. With a full preterist system, uh, oh yeah, some people go to heaven. But the earth continues on uh, as a blank show forever. Destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 did not stop pagan and Roman persecutions against the seven churches of Asia Minor, who were the first recipients of the letter. It didn't stop persecutions against them. That would not take place for almost 250 years. 312, when Constantine was victorious. In addition, the fall of Jerusalem did not deliver the Christians who were persecuted and murdered in Asia Minor by Muslims centuries after the fall of Rome. Asia Minor, believe it or not, and well, North Africa too, in the Middle East, used to be Christian. It was all conquered by the armies of Muhammad, Muslims. And it was bow the knee to us or die. And all those Christian lands are completely apostate now. There's a few Christians here and there, very few. The Coptic church is a basket case. That's in Egypt. Heretical church. Asia Minor used to be Christian. Not anymore. That happened long after AD 70. 
The vast majority of Christians have lived after the destruction of Israel in AD 70. Persecution even to death has occurred throughout the New Covenant era. Believers can learn about the importance of the destruction of Jerusalem and God's plan. But they also need a future hope, not just of their souls going to heaven, but of a full corporate cosmic victory. That's what the point of these chapters is. Christ does not conquer partially or imperfectly, but totally and eternally. Every knee will literally bow before him on the day of judgment. You're either going to bow before Christ worshiping him, praising him, casting your rewards of grace, the jewels and gold at his feet, his pierced feet, or you're going to be bowing before him by force in fear and dread. All those leftists, all those sodomites, all those perverts that run our government, Obama, the, uh, uh, Biden, the Satanists will all bow the knee to Christ right before they're cast into the lake of fire. Publicly, they will be humiliated. Publicly, the saints will be vindicated. The saints are publicly vindicated and seen in their glory on that day. Every knee will bow. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, Revelation 21.7. All those who overcome, all spiritual enemies, sin, temptation, the world, all anti-Christian beasts, Satan and his minions, etc., shall inherit the kingdom of Christ fully realized. Fully realized. They shall see the universe perfected and glorified and will live with Christ in, his new and glorious, in this new and glorious state. And if you, know your, if you know the Bible, that's obvious. The Old Testament would present the first coming of Christ, and then they present the victory. And it wasn't real clear, there wasn't a clear distinction made as to time when this was going to happen. Here's some stuff that's close, pretty close, still pretty far off, you know, the first coming, and then here's something in the distant future. Well, let's look at the fate. That's the fate of the, uh, the righteous. Here's the fate of the impenitent and unredeemed. The consequences of rejecting Christ, refusing to persevere, and following sinful autonomy are noted in verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, the majority text, which I believe is the best text, adds, and sinners. Abominable, murderers, sexually immoral or fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burns, the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now, it's quite obvious. The Bible does not, has never taught universalism. You know, it'd be nice if everybody was saved, but that's not in part. That's not part of God's plan. It doesn't teach universalism. There are the elect and non-elect, believers and unbelievers, the faithful overcomers, and the self-centered wicked. Wicked. Just as the scene of the final judgment serves as a sober warning of the cost of rejecting Christ, a similar warning occurs here once again, but with a list of why such people cannot be part of the new Jerusalem and live in the new heavens and the new earth. It wouldn't be the new heavens and the new earth with such people were there. There's a division between the righteous and the wicked. <clears throat> the list is obviously not exhaustive, but characterizes common rebellions against God that merit the lake of fire. If we accept the majority text, there are nine descriptions of the wicked rebels who must be cast into the outer darkness, and we'll just consider some, and we're running out of time. I haven't been paying attention to the time.
The first characteristic noted is the cowardly. They are probably placed first in the list because they are the opposite of those who, are, who persevere and overcome through Christ and for Christ. They are cowardly in the sense of being unwilling to confess Christ before men. <coughs> they would rather be loved by the world than by God. And you see this by people who were once Christian that have apostatized. They're Katy Perry, raised a Christian. Now a total satanic whore, basically. Uh, the girl who used to be a popular Christian singer who committed adultery and went to the world. They not only do not take a stand for biblical truth, but through fear of men, side with falsehood and evil. There is no neutrality. There can be no neutrality. There can be no fence sitting in God's universe. They run with the crowd. Fully adopt the world spirit wherever it goes. You can go back, and there's all these clips of prominent Democrats, including Joe Biden, not that long ago, not even 20 years ago, like 15 years ago, I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. I am not in favor of homosexual marriage. That was Obama, that was Biden, that was the Democrats 15 years ago. But as culture degenerates and becomes more wicked, and uh, they put up their, they wet their finger and put it up to the winds, the, the world spirit, I fully agree that sodomites can get married. It's wonderful. And if you oppose it, you're evil. And you need to be persecuted. The word coward. It is such cowards who produce political and religious beasts who then live in servile bondage to them. The word coward is an accurate description of all those who once professed Christ but then apostatized. To be a Christian, we must place God first in everything. Christians in the Roman Empire at times, they faced arrest, loss of livelihood, torture, their property would be confiscated, imprisonment, threats against loved ones, and even death. Thrown to the lions. Nero used to take Christians and tie them to stakes and cover them with pitch and light them on fire. And he would have dinner parties with Christians in a big circle around his dinner party burning in flames. Their corpses. If they refused to make an offering to Caesar and place him above Christ, they would be arrested and killed in many different horrifying ways. Are we ready to overcome if we are faced with such a supreme challenge? Most professing Christians today are not even willing to take a public stand for the Savior in areas of personal and social ethics. Instead, they claim, well, neutrality. We believe in pluralism. There should be ethical pluralism. Let the state decide that. Religion is for the prayer closet. We have that when we get behind the four walls of a church. And unfortunately, the Lutherans held to that view, and that led to Adolf Hitler. And that led to Lutherans serving in Hitler's army and serving as generals and colonels, going around murdering innocent Polish people and French people and Belgians and the Soviet Union. Cowards are compromisers, and compromisers are always syncretists. Let us pray for courage in our day of great social and political wickedness and apostasy. We must live a life of total dedication to Christ. The first commandment demands it. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul. 
Christ is God. Present your living bodies a present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Romans twelve one b. Oh, here's a statement by uh, here's Matthew Henry. The fearful lead the van in this black list. They durst not encounter the difficulties of religion, and they slavish and their slavish fear uh, proceeds from their unbelief. The second characteristic of those who practice evil is that they are unbelievers. Unbelief is the source of all lies and all wickedness. And that you see that throughout the whole Bible. And it's, very, it's emphasized a lot in the early chapters of the book of Hebrews. Why do they apostatize in the wilderness? Unbelief. Why do they disobey God? Unbelief. Why do they apostatize? Unbelief. If somebody's living in habitual sin and they have no desire to repent and they're not convicted at all, they're not a Christian. It is the foundation of covenant unfaithfulness and apostasy. As their society has fallen into skepticism, agnosticism, and atheism, it has totally abandoned loyalty to Jesus Christ, God, and the Bible. It has also replaced biblical ethics with man's autonomously devised perversions, no-fault divorce, rampant fornication, homosexuality, adultery, transvestitism, dishonesty, cursing, theft, statism, Sabbath desecration, idolatry, etc. The Great Commission is given to disciple whole nations because faith in Christ is the only way to have godly dominion. It is the only way salvation of salvation and the only means of sanctification. Our goal as Christians is to have a Christian state, a Christian culture, a Christian society, Christian institutions. And when the church apostatized and became liberal, they became a bunch of secular humanists with religious terminology, and you got sodomite pastors and all kinds of perversions. And then on the other hand, you had the fundamentalists who went to dispensationalism and said, don't polish brash on a sinking ship. Everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket. Don't try to change society. Just try to live neutrally. Doesn't work. You want to get persecuted? Take that position. When a society rejects Christ and adopts secular humanism and it treats Bible-believing Christians as enemies, for true believers place loyalty and obedience to Jesus far above loyalty to the state. But Christ's law is absolute. It's non-negotiable. It is above man. It is above Joe Biden. It is above the Supreme Court. No man has the right to say what God says is immoral is now moral. No man has the right to say what God says is moral is now immoral. There can be no neutrality. Rush Dooney put it really great. He says, whatever the source of law is in your society shows you who the God of that society is. And the God of our society is the state. And of course, they appeal to experts, and they appeal to science, and they appeal to scientists, and they appeal to this and that. It's a big flow of excrement, all coming from the bowels of Satan. It's all lies. It all Just look at wherever Democrats are in control. It leads to ethical chaos, high rates of crime, the family disintegrates. Women are oppressed and suffer greatly. Women, Christian women, you know, they make fun of the 50s and the 40s. Christian women had it way better in the past, in spite of the propaganda, when they submitted to their husbands 
and they lived at home and raised children to be good Christians, and the men made the, the living. We, they, they now both have to work because our taxes are so high because they worship the state and they worship statism. To accept the secular state as the source of ethics and law is to accept the beast as God and bow before him. The vast majority of black churches serve the beast. The vast majority of Roman Catholics, or maybe even all of them, serve the beast. I'm talking about the current beast, not the beast in Revelation, which is probably Rome, probably the Caesars. Some say it's the leaders of Israel. Either way, the application's the same. They serve the beast. Why do they serve the beast? Why do black churches and blacks serve the beast? Because the beast is offering them money. It steals on their behalf. Vote for us. We'll steal from productive people and we'll give you the money. And we'll subsidize your abortion so you can murder your children. Well, anyway, these, this is very important. We'll have to stop here. We're out of time. We'll wrap, we'll wrap up this. And then we're, I'm just going to look at a few passages in chapter 22 that obviously teach the consummation. Where one one passage says the falls, you know, there is no more uh, th that the fall is basically done away with, and we'll look at that, and then I, I got to finish up. I had a little bit of Corinthians on the nature of the resurrected body. Let us pray, Father. We thank you for what an amazing, perfect salvation Christ has achieved. We look forward to that day. It gives us strength, strengthen our faith in the second bodily coming of Christ, strengthen our faith in the in the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, literally, when He returns. <clears throat> strengthen our faith and his final judgment so that we will not sin, so that we will dedicate our lives to him and fight sin with every fiber of our being and be willing to confess him before men, men who hate him and hate us. Strengthen our faith, for we know these things are true. We know that they will absolutely come to pass, and we know that full preterists are liars and heretics. In Jesus' name, amen.